Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 163. It is January 21st. My name is Tyler. Of course, you have my co-hosts Pratik and Nick here as well. Before we dive right into all things politics of this past week, please follow, please share the podcast. It really helps us out and we do appreciate that. But with that said, we're going to be kicking off with our favorite person in the world, Donald Trump. So Pratik, what's going on with Trump? So Trump becomes pro-SCOTUS. So Donald Trump is urging the Supreme Court to keep him on the Republican primary ballot in Colorado, challenging a ruling that cited his involvement in the January 6th Capitol attack. His legal team argues he's not a U.S. officer, didn't partake in insurrection, and only Congress can enforce the relevant constitutional cause. The case set for oral arguments on February 8th could have nationwide ramifications. Trump, in an interview with Sean Hannity, emphasized we put on three great justices and they're not going to take the vote away from the people, referring to Justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Also, his Georgia prosecutor, Fulton County DA Fannie Willis, faces controversy as documents reveal special prosecutor Nathan Wade, appointed for the Trump case, allegedly used funds from for, for their improper romantic relationship to buy her plane tickets. Credit card statements in Wade's divorce case raise concern about financial benefits. Accusations and counterclaims intensify, prompting calls for case disqualification. Hearing on this prosecution will be on February 15th, where they will address these allegations. According to the Harvard-Harris poll um, that was conducted from January 16th to 17th, if the election were today, Trump leads with 43%, followed by Biden at 40%, RFK at 12%, Cornell West at 2%, and Jill Stein at 2%. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on Trump becoming pro-SCOTUS, all the Supreme Court stuff going on, and all these, you know, side cases that are sh- uh, that are signaling the same corruption that Trump talks about? Yeah. Trump is pro whoever helps him out, but it's not like you're going to lobby the Supreme Court. Like, that's not how the Supreme Court is supposed to work. They're not supposed to be, you know, talking to lobbyists, looking at the news, getting their, you know, opinions swayed by that. It should be by their legal readings. So, you know, while he's going on this campaign, it's more public PR campaign than anything. So no matter what happens, let's say, you know, he loses the case, he could still say, well, the public supports me. They all know it was corruption and fraud and and they know this wasn't just. So that's kind of the thing, the angle I think Donald Trump's going. But this isn't going to have any effect on the actual outcome of the case, in my opinion. <laughs> um, in terms of the Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, it's just really interesting that we have blatant corruption caught. In this case, especially with Trump, because it's always insinuated with any of these accusations that, you know, maybe they aren't just, maybe they're politically motivated, maybe someone's getting a, a, you know, a kickback or something, that's why it's occurring, and that's exactly what's being accused of here. Now, we don't obviously have the conviction there, but it seems likely that this person did do some stuff that is illegal. They took bribes, so with that... That just gives justification to Trump supporters. And if that if they get caught once, if one person gets caught trying to screw with Trump, trying to trying to take a bribe or hand, hand out or something, it's going to ruin basically every other prosecution against Trump. So that's kind of where I think we're at with all this. Obviously, these things come up week, week after week. Trump is always in the news for, for some legal proceedings. But, you know, at this point, it really depends what the Supreme Court says. And we'll go from there. Yeah, as, as far as what you said, Tyler, about this not mattering. I agree. I don't think anyone voting is going to care about any of these cases. I mean, maybe Colorado a little bit if something actually happens, but by and large, no one really cares because Trump's had all this stuff before, right? 
For example, the Eugene Carroll case is still going on. No one seems to care about that amongst the voter base. Sure, it gets some media you know, attention every once in a while. But like, ultimately, is someone going to decide whether or not they vote for Trump based on any of these cases? Likely not. Their vote is probably not going to change. So, you know, this could encourage Democrats, if he does get convicted, to go out and vote more. But for the Republicans who really like him, they're not going to switch their vote anytime soon, because to your point, you know, the perception is that the whole system is corrupt and this is just a witch hunt. Um, whether you agree with that or not, that's how it's seen. Uh, uh, one thing as an aside, because I think this would be pretty funny. I don't think a president has ever like kicked out their own Supreme Court nominee that they've put on the court. But I feel like Trump would be the only president in U.S. history to actually do it if anyone voted against him. Like, for example, if Neil Gorsuch is like, you know, Trump messed up, I'm going to vote against him on this. I feel like if Trump got back in office, he would literally kick Neil Gorsuch <laughs> and like for, try can to force him, him off the Supreme though? Court. There's no way. I, I don't know if you can like explicitly do it, but he yeah. would like pull all the levers to try to get him to quit or to get kicked out. Huh. I mean, but if he did that, why wouldn't he just do that to all the liberal people? No, but Pratik, <laughs> this is about loyalty tests, okay? Trump has fired more people than anyone else. There's more bad blood between him and all the former people than anyone else. It's really funny to me that as he's running, he says that Nikki Haley, you know, Rex Tillerson, uh, Chris Christie, they're all riding on his coattails. Even Ron DeSantis, you know, Trump said without, without Trump, Ron DeSantis would be working at a pizza shop. That's what he said. Of course, that's yeah. hyperbole, but it's pretty funny. And he just, it, it's so funny to me that, of all these people who are in mainstream politics, who worked for Trump, realized they didn't like him, and now they're running against him in some way, there are so many people doing that, and the average Republican voter is like, oh, you know what? Trump's a good guy. All these people are to blame. Like, give me a break. Like, <laughs> clearly, if you piss off this many people, burn these many bridges— you just are not a good boss overall. So all the stuff about him saying, oh, I'm going to hire the best people. We're going to like, who even wants to join his team at this point? He's down to like D-string lawyers. No one's taking him on as clients. Like it, it's just a train wreck. But anyway, I don't think any of that matters. Yeah, you again, don't know how far, how deep the deep state goes, <laughs> how many connections they have, how many people they've gotten to. It's all corruption out there. And there is one man standing for, for liberty and for freedom. And for justice and for America. Bald eagle crying on the shoulder. Trump. It is Donald Trump. It is Donald Trump. Okay, and Pratik, let me, let's get your thoughts on this. <laughs> let me say some stuff here. So what I would say, um, what I think that this does have an impact. I still believe that all of these things that deal with Trump, what it does is it keeps him in the limelight. That's important for Democrats. Democrats need to make sure that they energize all their voters to come out and vote. The more, more and more Trump is being discussed, the more and more they're going to be energized to vote for Joe Biden. Democrats don't care for Joe Biden as much as Republicans care for Donald Trump. It's a very important thing to note. So what that means is that even in the past, like Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. The reason he beat him is because a lot of Democrats were energized to come vote against Donald Trump. So they need to make sure that that fire and fury is alive. So all of these cases are beneficial for the Democrats to make sure that they continue to have as much, you know, promotion of like, you know, trying to let's go out and vote and not even just vote. They want to make sure that they go vote against Trump. And obviously they're going to go vote for Joe Biden in that case. On the flip side, you know what I love about you, by the way? I just have to say. When it comes to, like, the phrases that Trump will say about himself, for example, he said 
he'll shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care, right? You will then take that same phrase and just apply it to Biden and pretend like it applies to all the Democrats. You're like, Joe Biden could go out and shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. People would still vote for him. And it's like, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> it's fundamentally different. And then for the fire and fury comment, you know, you attributed that to the Biden side. Trump literally said that about North Korea. Okay, like, don't act like this is some Democrat talking point. Either I don't way, know. I, I did like the commentary, though. Please continue. <clears throat> so my, my main point, though, is just that Democrats need to make sure that if they, they, as much stories there are about Trump, they highlight it as much as they can. So in all of their news agencies, they need to make sure that this is the primary focal point. And on the flip side, the Republicans, especially with the Trump side, all of this stuff benefits him. It kills off all of his primary opponents. All of the momentum that Nikki Haley has, that Ron DeSantis may have had, all of that stuff gets washed out of the water the more and more Trump gets discussed. If anything, Colorado, the, him being banned, was a boon to Donald Trump. It hurt all those other people. Those other people, basically, if they had any momentum coming in where Nikki Haley was getting a lot of big boosts in New Hampshire, all of that stuff went down the drain as soon as they started talking about banning Donald Trump. Because then, it's just like, only person that can hurt Donald Trump is Donald Trump. All the other people that are involved in all this stuff, they're all doing whatever they can to make sure that their side is in the best you know, situation. Democrats, I mean, they probably want that if Donald Trump is there, that they have a higher chance and probability of winning. Who knows what happens if Nikki Haley is there? Who knows what happens if Ron DeSantis is there? But they've already seen the game played out where if it is Joe Biden and Donald Trump, they saw a result happen in 2020 that was in their favor. So I just think that in terms of politics, and the whole breakdown of all this stuff, it is, all of this stuff is beneficial to Trump. He just needs to make sure that he doesn't say or do anything stupid. And what Trump has a tendency to do is like, even though he's like in the best position he can be in, he'll end up saying or doing something dumb that is going to hurt him. So I think that's the main thing here. And if you look at polling data, what is very important is Trump is winning in every single poll right now against Biden for the most part. In uh, Harvard-Harris, the most har recent Harvard-Harris poll, which I, which I talked about in the story, so Trump's at 43%, followed by Biden at 40, RFK at 12, and then West and Stein both are at 2. But even if you look at Harvard-Harris as just one-on-one -on -one between Biden and Trump, Trump is still winning. Trump is at 52% and Biden is at 48%. Why I think all of this stuff is important is all of this stuff is pushing up Donald Trump. <clears throat> You're like, if the RNC was thinking, man, maybe we should like investigate another candidate, do them like trying to move away from Trump may be disadvantageous to them too. So I think in all aspects, Trump is like, you know, going to be the beneficiary of all this. And at the same time, is better for Democrats too that Trump is on the ballot because if Trump is on the ballot, the chances of them winning is a little bit better than it is with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley because even if Biden might beat those people, you don't know. It's a storyline you haven't seen as opposed to a storyline that you have already seen. So you're better off, if you're the Democrats, they're better off having Trump and the Republicans are better off having Trump. But too. we have, in a way seen the story of trump before because he did lose in 2020 that's what i'm and saying it, there there was different circumstances and i'm all for that but like yeah. just because we've we've seen a story doesn't mean you know necessarily is going to do better but the polls are showing that trump's going to win this yeah Trump's going to be biden that's pretty clear the one what, what i will say is it seems like most trump voters are anti-institutional more contrarian thinkers it's almost as if if the if the if the democrats just said hey guys we love trump now trump 
Trump's our guy. We want Trump in office. They, they would scare away at least like 15, 20% of those Trump voters because like they just specifically can't do anything that the Democrats would want. I think they're but, so, I'm going to do the opposite of what you say that I'm just going to not vote for Trump anymore. There is a bug. That's though. the only way to kill Trump. There is a bug within Democrats, though. The Democrats are necess- not necessarily passionate about any of their candidates right now. They're just passionate that they don't want Trump in office. So, like, whatever happens, like, if Trump is there, they're going to have the highest voter participation rate that they will have. If Trump is not there, then the Democratic Party probably doesn't know what will happen. So, in all contexts, like, Trump is the victor here. And the more and more you push up Trump stories, it's giving Trump more limelight. That also is beneficial to Trump. And let's say the Supreme Court decides to rule against Trump, then Trump is definitely going to win. So it's like either way you go about it, Trump is coming out on the better side. All it comes down to is what happens on election day because, you know, Trump lost to Biden once. Speaking of, so, let's so move yeah, on to Iowa. what happened on election day? Yeah. All right, so Trump blows out the competition in Iowa. Donald Trump clinched a historic victory in the Iowa caucuses, solidifying his hold on the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Despite challenging conditions in the lowest turnout caucus in 25 years, again, the weather was pretty terrible that day. A lot of old voters, it was hard to get to the polls. Participants braved that cold, though, to deliver Trump a remarkable 30 percentage point win, breaking records and surpassing Bob Dole's 1988 victory margin. Here are the results in delicate count after Iowa. Trump won 51% of the vote, gaining 20 delegates. Ron DeSantis was a distant second at 21%, winning nine, which, by the way, a miserable showing given how much he campaigned in Iowa, went to every single county, and he did this poorly. Nikki Haley was in third place with 19.1%, winning eight delegates. And in last place was Vivek Ramaswamy, 7.7%, winning only three delegates. Following the caucus, though, Vivek dropped out of the race, as did Asa Hutchinson. So Pratik and Tyler... What do you make of Trump's massive victory? So this is what we all expected. We've been calling this for a while. Trump just smashed like he's probably going to smash pretty much every other state here. I thought it was so funny that Nikki Haley came out and said, well, it's clear we now know who the front runners are in this race when she literally got third place. She didn't even beat DeSantis in Iowa, which is pretty hilarious. Like, I understand DeSantis campaigned more there. He had, like, twice as many events as Nikki Haley there. But she's getting all the donor money now. She's supposed to be the candidate that's supposed to be taking charge in second place. And that's not the case. And on top of that, there have been some talks about VP. And she basically said, I'm not going to be VP. I would never accept that. And Trump said he didn't want her as VP. So she's not even campaigning for a VP spot right now. She's supposed to win the race. And she got third place in Iowa. So that's really not a good look. DeSantis, like you said, is poor showing, but that guy's been a falling knife for a while. Um, Vivek dropping out, of course, that's going to help Trump probably in the long run. Not by much, but by a little bit. I would say if, you know, you could vote on social media or something, I'm sure Vivek would do great, but that's not where we're at right now. Right now it's in-person voting, which is what he wants. He doesn't even want uh, uh, mail-in voting at all. So there you go with that. Um, But yeah, I mean, this kind of turned out how we expected. Were there any big surprises for you guys? So one thing I thought was surprising was that it all fell with the polls. 
So, you know, I always say like polls are the most like, you know, is the closest thing that we'll ever know to what's actually going to happen. The outcome was almost identical to what the polls were suggesting. So like it was whatever people thought that it was like what it was showing in the polls was I think Trump was going to win at 52 percent and he got 51 percent. And I think Nikki Haley was supposed to be at 18%. She got 19%. And Ron DeSantis was supposed to be at 20% and got 21%. I think it's very close. And this just signals that, you know, polls are generally correct on these things. Um, one thing that I did find interesting is that Donald Trump did win. This is the first time Donald Trump has won in Iowa. Um, the last time that they ran in the 2016 election, Ted Cruz won the state. And at that time, they were like, oh, is Donald Trump even going to be a good candidate? Will he even make it? And then he won almost every other state after that. Um, when it deals with Iowa, I think the main thing is just that Iowa is never really necessarily called an election in a while. Um, this is like one of those primaries that always starts in the beginning. And then, then you have New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is a better signal on what can happen in the country than Iowa is. But either way, I think that from what it seems right now, with especially with Vivek Ramaswamy dropping out, it's like Donald Trump should win Iowa, he should win New Hampshire, he should win South Carolina, and then he should probably win most of Super Tuesday because it's all falling in Trump's lap right now unless something happens. But for the most part, I mean, all this Colorado stuff, as I said, is helping Trump out just a little bit more than he would have been otherwise. Nick, what's your thoughts? Well, let's get to uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Tyler, can you bring in that part of the story? Of course. So Vivek, like cake, Ramaswamy for vice president. Following the Iowa caucus biotech entrepreneur, Vivek Ramaswamy suspended his bid for the 2024 Republican nomination and promptly endorsed Trump, joining his campaign team. Ramaswamy stated that he made the decision after determining there was no path forward for him in the race. Quote, absent things we don't want to see happen in this country today, end quote. Addressing supporters gathered at Des Moines Hotel, Ramaswamy declared, quote, Trump will have my full endorsement for presidency, end quote. Meanwhile, Donald Trump essentially canceled Nikki Haley as his pick for VP during a uh, rally Friday night in New Hampshire, saying, quote, she's okay, but she's not a presidential timber. And when I say that, that probably means she's not going to be chosen as VP, end quote. With Ramaswamy joining the Trump campaign, uh, camp and Nikki Haley out of the picture, rumors have begun circulating that Trump has found his VP. What do you guys think? Do you think he's the VP? And I want to add a little bit more context here. I did hear a statement from Glenn Beck. Um, I don't listen to Glenn Beck. It just came up on my radar somehow. And he said he was speaking with Trump. And when he uh, Trump asked him about who he should pick for VP, he said Vivek. And then Trump had responded by saying, yeah, pretty much everyone I ask and poll about this says I should be picking Vivek. Um, and that, along with the comments of Nikki Haley, suggest that he is a likely pick at this point. But with that said, what are your guys' thoughts? Well, I think it's sad because now there's no real flair or flavor to the race. Like, I wouldn't have voted for Vivek in the general. I don't like him as a candidate. But I do like the fact that he brings new ideas. He throws stuff out there. He gets, you know, Trump and everyone else to actually react to him and talk about some of these new ideas. For example, this campaign so far, nothing is really about the future of the country. Not a single candidate has a promising vision for how they're going to improve the lives of everyday citizens in the United States. Vivek was like, hey, like, we have a crisis of identity, a crisis of where we're going as a country overall. Let's try to figure something out. I have an idea. Come, like, vote for me, and I'll, I'll, I'll take us there, right? I'll take us to a good place. I don't know what that place is, but, you know, I'll take us there. Um, and I just think it's sad that he's out at this point because... 
you know, what are the rest of the candidates offering? It's so much of it is, okay, we hate Joe Biden, we hate the Democrats. Oh, it's the culture wars and it's China. And like, that's it. There's a little immigration stuff too, but there's nothing fundamental about the future of this country in any of these candidates, including Trump. He has nothing to offer. Like he has some memes about vertiports and whatever, um, which like if you go back 10 years, that was a, like go back to the Jetsons. Go watch watch any kids TV show. Trump will say an idea from that and people will be like, oh, that sounds cool. But like, come on, give me give me something more than that. So in any case, I just think overall, even though I didn't like Vivek Ramaswamy, at the very least, he challenged the status quo and offered new ideas in a way that I actually think shifted some conversations. And it's just sad to see him out, even though personally, I didn't like him as a candidate. So I wanted to add some stuff here for the context. So obviously, Vivek Ramaswamy is the most likely VP candidate, it seems. But there are other options. So Tim Scott recently endorsed Donald Trump um, in January. He is an actual option for Donald Trump to choose as VP. In September, um, Trump told NBC News that he liked the concept of choosing a woman as his running mate, but added, we're going to pick the best person that brings in other people that are potential options. One of them is one of his allies, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Noem is one of the most popular governors in the country. South Dakota isn't necessarily, you know, it's not probably going to win you that many votes, which is probably not necessarily a good option in that aspect. But Christy Noam has is like, you know, a suburb of women. She was a governor of South Dakota before she was a representative. She's staunch, she's a staunch conservative on pro-guns and she's anti-abortion. She brings in a lot of those brackets which is necessary, important in a lot of these things. Then other options are Elise Stefanik, who is a representative from New York. She's a uh, um she she was thinking she was like talking about how she wants to be a running mate, and she's from New York, and she's like one of Trump's friends over there. And then other people are Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State. Mike Pompeo and Trump have had bad blood since like you know he was in office as a Secretary of State. But Mike Pompeo also has presidential ambitions and they and he has like a big foreign policy brain behind him. So they've thought that maybe he'd be a good pick. And the other two options, other th four options are Carrie Lake, who Nick hates with a passion. Um, she was a uh, Arizona gubernatorial race candidate who lost. Then MTG, who Nick also doesn't like. Um, she's like one of the biggest faces in MAGA. Byron Donald, who's MTG. a... Yeah, Byron Donalds, who's from, who's a representative of Florida, and um, White House former communications director Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's the governor of Arkansas right now. So those are the other options. Just wanted to bring that up. But on on face value, I think it makes the most sense to have Vivek Ramaswamy as a vice president. Vivek has, um, since he's been in the election cycle. He, you know, really striked a big chord among MAGA voters. He basically had a lot of these brand new ideas and is a fresh face to the whole movement. And on top of everything else, Vivek Ramaswamy checks a lot of boxes. Democrats are usually the ones that like to check boxes when it comes to VP. But the problem with um, the Republican side right now is that we did lose to Biden last time. So... They're trying to find someone that's different. And Vivek Ramaswamy is an Indian guy. He's young. He's an entrepreneur. He's probably even more wealthy than Donald Trump is. He has a, you know, he's part of the healthcare scope. So he brings in, in you know, stuff in that aspect. He's had brand new ideas when it deals with, you know, policies dealing with civics tests and immigration and he brings a lot of stuff to the table and he's more of a vibrant younger version of trump and if trump wants to pass along his heritage to somebody else it would make the most sense for it to be ramaswamy because he's already seen as trump 2.0 so i don't know there's a lot of different aspects to this but that's my thoughts
Yeah. So a few comments here. First, on previous episodes, I and a little bit with Nick talked about Vivek maybe having, uh, not having a chance of VP because of Trump's ego. Trump saying, "I don't want anyone to outshine me, so I can't have this guy as my right hand man." I think if he does end up picking Vivek, it signals that Trump actually cares more about the movement than we previously thought. And it's not all about all about him because he would be caring more about legacy at that point and carrying on the torch, which is why I, if I if I did see a VP tick of uh, Vivek as VP on the ticket, he might actually be able to get some real work done as VP. And I say that one because he's he's an absolute workhorse. If you look at how many events these guys campaigned in, in Iowa, he had campaigned like 250 and the second place was like 99 as Ron DeSantis. This guy clearly hustles. He's a hustler. So he's going to be doing something. He's not, he's not just going to be sitting around. Second, at least from what I saw with his conversations with Trump that were public, he does seem to be pushing his own agenda of what MAGA is onto Trump. And Trump does seem to be somewhat receptive because the audience hears Vivek say it, they like it. And Trump goes, oh, the audience likes it, therefore I like it. So they have like a weird relationship where Vivek might actually be able to introduce some interesting ideas to Trump, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, but on the other hand, you do have other options. I would say someone like Mike Pompeo. Trump's not sp- going to surround himself with someone he doesn't like, even if they're smart. That doesn't really, you know... Uh, factor not a into Trump the picture thing. at all it's just not a trump thing like he'll pick you more off loyalty than off how smart you are how smart you are doesn't really matter because trump just wants to tell you what to do anyway pretty much so that's kind of where i stand on that i think the vivek is the likely pick it's not guaranteed at this point but i also think it's the strongest pick i think him having that indian background i think it helps a little bit but also what are the alternatives like maybe getting a woman on the ticket would help a little bit i I don't think it would help that much, despite all the, you know, the lawsuit and stuff that's been going on with Trump. I just don't think you really need that that token figure as much as you might think. But that's where I'm thinking. Well, you made a lot of good points about Vivek as a VP, but I want to say someone who would be a terrible VP pick, Carrie Lake. Like Pratik said, I do not like her at all, but I think she would be terrible because it's basically like Sarah Palin 2.0. To Tyler's point, you check a box... But that box, there's something wrong with it. So I think it would be a detriment to Trump's campaign. I think overall, especially if she gets in, like he will say if he's doing a campaign event where she ran for governor, he'll say, oh, Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake's in the office. Everyone clap for Carrie Lake and you'll get some cheers. But he doesn't respect her in any way. You know, he's just going to use her like a tissue and throw her away. So like like, she, she doesn't actually offer anything besides a stepping stone to win a single state. And beyond that, like she just as a VP, I mean, maybe to Tyler, what you were saying, she's someone that could be like molded and just shaped into whatever MAGA wants of her. But at the same time, like she's just such a scummy individual and she keeps suing to try to win this election that she lost fair and square. And it's the whole like Trump's whole same saga, but at a state level. But the only thing is Carrie Lake doesn't have Trump's same like image and the whole history behind it. She's just sad. And for that reason, I don't know. I just think it would be a bad pick because, you know, you want to pick winners to this point. Trump keeps billing himself as a winner, even though he lost the last race. Let's just gloss over that. Um, He says that he won. So therefore, he must have. Right. Everyone knows that. Um, So (laughs) I don't know. It's a critique's (laughs) point. It cracked me up about South Dakota. But um, you're like, oh, one of the most popular governors, South Dakota. It's like, no one knows who this person is. No one even cares about South Dakota in this country, honestly. No one cares about Iowa. They pick every single presidential race wrong. But all that all that aside, you know, um, 
I just think Carrie Lake would be a terrible pick, but Tyler, really good points about Vivek. I think one thing that I do want to make sure that we talk about, though, is like where Trump gets hit the most. And in my opinion, this is what what has been seen even since Romney was was the candidate for the Republican Party. He gets hit within within suburban women. He doesn't get many female votes. This is a problem with the Donald Trump campaign. This has been a problem with the Donald Trump campaign since 2016. They just didn't really address it that much. Where it's like back then they just thought that oh Hillary Clinton was the candidate, so all of these women came out to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. But then whenever he lost in 2020 to Joe Biden. That wasn't necessarily a talking point because it was like this is old white guy versus another old white guy. They both said offensive things before. Like what was weird though is like that is an actual thing where it would be in my opinion, it would benefit him a lot to have a woman as a as a VP because it gives him like, you know, it balances it out. So if there are all these scandals going on, you want to make sure that you win women. And the problem right now in this country is that despite all these Republicans really not acknowledging it, abortion is a very major talking point. Every election since that Roe v. Wade, you know, decision took place, Republicans have lost in down ballot races. And the reason they've lost is because women have come out in massive numbers to vote against the Republican Party because of the Republican Party stance on abortion so i think that's a very important thing to note sure having a pro-life woman and a lot of these women that are like you know the voices of pro-life movement they're all prominent faces too obviously the the idea is that oh all the women are you know pro-choice but that's not necessarily true either but even then it's like having a woman kind of balances that out a little bit and the problem is is that as i said Republicans have been losing in down ballot races and the problem reason why is they can't win suburban women and having Donald Trump as the face isn't going to necessarily help that in any way and even if Vivek Ramaswamy is the VP I don't really think that's going to have a big impact on trying to get more women to vote for Donald Trump I think that they need to do something to address this because unless they do like it's going to be a repeat of last time. And like, you know, we think about all these other, you know, different interest groups. Women are a very major interest group in our country. And if you can't win the women in our country, you're not going to win in the election unless it's like some magic happens or if all the women don't like the female candidate as in Hillary Clinton. But like it's not it's not something that you should like bank on because you still need that vote, in my opinion. Well, well, so we got some breaking news incoming. We have Vivek Ramaswamy now declaring that he is a woman. So the, the, the ticket, in fact, would be a man woman ticket. You know, I think they're very strong now. And uh, <laughs> look, you made a bunch of you made a bunch of good points there. I think, you know, the female vote is really tough with Trump specifically. But I also just don't know if even having a female VP candidate is going to help them. That, that's, that's the fair difference. Too. It's not, you're not right. that I think you're absolutely wrong. It's just like I'm like if you're a woman and you hate Trump, is really just having any woman on that ballot going to change your mind? Maybe. Maybe you just dislike the Democrats to Biden that much. But probably not. Probably not in my opinion. I, I agree with you, Tyler, by the way. And I will say if you were going to go that entire angle – he already won in 2016 with choosing Mike Pence. Okay, I don't think That's he needs true. to do it this time around, right? There's two white men. Shown that he should despite... pick Mike Pence again. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my God! All right, Pratikul. With that being said, take us to New Hampshire. Okay, so Haley versus Trump in New Hampshire. In the showdown for the Republican and Democratic presidential nominations, all eyes turned to New Hampshire this Tuesday, January 23rd. In the season's inaugural primary election, 
The race will be for 22 delegates, where the GOP primary tries to win a more moderate base. In 2016, Donald Trump won New Hampshire in a landslide, and polls suggest that he will repeat in this election. The most recent Suffolk University poll conducted between January 17th to 18th, this is following Chris Christie dropping out of the race, shows Trump leading the pack at 52%, followed by Nikki Haley at 35%, and Ron DeSantis at 6%. So this is going to be a primary between these three people. Obviously, Ron DeSantis is, looks like the third person out. But what is interesting is that, you know, Nikki Haley had a lot of momentum. She got the endorsement from Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire. And everything was going well until Donald Trump got banned in Colorado. And then it kind of like went against Nikki Haley a little bit in that state because New Hampshire would be one of those states that would decide whether they want to keep Trump on the ballot or not because that is one of those places that is kind of like a 50-50 state. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on Trump versus Haley in New Hampshire? Who do you think is going to win? I mean, do we, we we've had this conversation we so know many Trump's times. Win. Trump is going to win everyone. Trump if you've been listening to this podcast you will be able to predict all of this election because we already know what's going to happen. Trump wins, unless he's not on the ballot or gets thrown in jail. That's pretty much it. I will just add for a little more context, moving forward, February 8th, we have Nevada caucus. February 24th, we have South Carolina primary. February, February 27th, we have Michigan primary. March 2nd, we have Idaho, Michigan, and Missouri. And then um, after that, we have uh, Super Tuesday. So just wanted to give that for a little bit of context. But apart from that, Trump's going to sweep New Hampshire. Nikki Haley's going to do fairly well. DeSantis is not going to do well. I do trust these polls. I think they're going to be pretty much on the money, so I don't have too much commentary. Yeah, Nikki Haley's going to have a high second place. You know, it's going to be sort of close, maybe within 10 percentage points, if if she ends up doing really, really well. Um, but if Nikki Haley loses in New Hampshire, if she can't pull out, you know, an upset stunner, then what is her campaign to offer? You know, South Carolina's coming up soon. She should win that state as governor, but as we've seen this time around, Trump is an incumbent. He already won the presidency, and he's probably going to win her home he's state. He's blowing which is out going to be the nail in the coffin. Right now. Yeah, no, it's not even going to be close. So, I think if she can't win somehow in New Hampshire, her cam campaign is over. Um, but if she gets a really high second place, maybe she justifies sticking around. Ron DeSantis, of course, is just going to stay in the race until you know. I don't even know. Like, what does he have to prove at this point? He's going to lose. And, you know, if anything, the person who would benefit most from Trump actually being uh, prosecuted um, and charged with anything is Ron DeSantis. Like, he is the only person <laughs> that stands to benefit at this point uh, if he were to lose. Although, granted, if it was between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, I kind of think Nikki Haley might might win that. Um, but that's not the race we're going to see. Trump beats both of them. And that's just how it is. I'll see you in a week. I think Nick is right. Um, one thing that I will say, though, is like, I still argue, this is where me and Nick differ, but we don't really know. If like Ron DeSantis isn't in the race, will that vote go to Nikki Haley? And if Nikki Haley is in the race, isn't in the race, will that vote go to Ron DeSantis? I think timing wise, Nikki Haley has to win South Carolina. So Nikki Haley's time is coming up pretty quick. So she has to win New Hampshire and she has to win South Carolina. If she doesn't win New Hampshire, comes up a close second, she still has to win South Carolina. If Nikki Haley loses South Carolina, the game is over for Nikki Haley. Like, I don't really think that there is anywhere you can go about it. Then all of the votes that Nikki Haley will have will probably transfer to Ron DeSantis. 
Maybe. That's where me and Nick don't know. Like, maybe they go to Trump and then Ron DeSantis is nothing. Or if they go to Ron DeSantis, maybe Ron DeSantis does have some momentum coming in. But one of these, with Nikki Haley, she if she doesn't win in South Carolina, she has to drop out for there to be even a conversation that Ron DeSantis has a chance to do something. If Ron DeSantis, like, gets that vote. If that vote gets split between Trump and DeSantis, then it's game over anyway and Trump wins. But in terms of the political calculations, I just think that, like, because South Carolina is the third elect third primary election in this whole race, it's like the timing of that really means that Nikki Haley needs to do well in South Carolina. Because if she doesn't, then this game is over for Nikki Haley. And I think that the more the more and more we talk about Trump, it automatically boosts him in the polls. You really think about it like it's like in any it's like if you watch a reality show, whoever is the most talked about person in that show is the one that's going to win in the end. Whether or not everybody on the reality show hates him or not, because they're the ones that are being the most talked about. Same thing applies to the presidential elections. So like if Donald Trump is the main conversation point, and at the time it seems like he is, then Donald Trump should win the Republican nomination. Like in the Republican Party would be dumb to even suggest otherwise if he is that popular within the Republican Party base. The only question is, is that when it comes to the general, what's going to happen? And that's something that we won't know. Think about Biden is that for all in all intents and purposes, Biden doesn't get as much news coverage as Donald Trump does. And Biden is the president of the country, which is kind of weird because generally speaking, the president should get more presidential, should get more news coverage than anybody else that is running because he's the sitting president. But that's not necessarily the case here where Trump is talked about at a much higher level than even Joe Biden is. But when it deals with New Hampshire, I think that Nikki Haley has to do well. And if Nikki Haley doesn't do well, it's done for Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis can still wait for Super Tuesday and he can still wait for the Florida election and to see what happens there. But Nikki Haley doesn't have that, you know, chance to do that. Yeah, Pratik, wouldn't you say, though, let me argue with you briefly. Wouldn't you say, though, that for the sitting president, honestly, who cares? If you're running in a primary, then people care. For example, when Obama was president, and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were both running in their respective primaries, there was more coverage of what was going on in the primaries politically than anything Obama was doing. Like, he was a lame duck, he was on the way out. And even when he was, I don't know, like for Trump when he was in office uh, last time around, I feel like, and maybe this is wrong, but I feel like even though he's a magnet for so much news coverage, I feel like there was a lot more like political talk shows and general coverage of what was going on within the Democratic primary process than anything Trump was doing day to day. Now, of course, he did some things that made headlines naturally, but I feel like the day to day campaign stuff really centered political political coverage centered on who's going to be the Democrat nominee. That was the major story. And then once that was chosen, OK, now it's Trump versus that nominee. But since they're still in the primary, I don't know, for me at least, I feel like it just makes sense that they're covering Trump in the primary process more so than they're talking about Joe Biden. And to be fair, like, what does Joe Biden have to show? Trump at least, like, captures the news. People want to cover him because he makes headlines. He draws clicks. He draws attention. Joe Biden's like a pretty soft-spoken guy. He's not coming out there with any bangers. So, I don't know, just in general. Well, so, he, I, I partially agree. But also, let's not pretend the Democrats aren't hiding Joe Biden because the more they put him out there, the more he gaffs and screws up and gives Republicans a chance. So while I think you're right, he's not capitalizing on any opportunity to get PR. 
because I just don't think anyone actually trusts him not to screw it up. Which is a really sad thing when that's the actual president of your country. He can't go out and do things because people know he's going to screw them up. But that brings us to some recent comments by Nikki Haley. Are you guys ready to move on? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so is Nikki Haley actually Nancy Pelosi? So Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley addressed a crowd at uh, Neen, New Hampshire, expressing her concerns about Trump's mental fitness, stating, quote, Last night at the rally, Trump repeatedly mentioned me regarding Capitol riots. I wasn't even in D.C. on January 6th. It, well, I wasn't even in office then. She continued, The concern I have is not that I'm saying, uh, I'm not saying anything derogatory. But when you're dealing with the pressure of a presidency, we can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do it. Haley responded to claims of Trump's confusion, remarked, uh, they're saying that he got confused, that he was talking about Nancy Pelosi. He mentioned me multiple times in that scenario. This follows Trump's statements at a campaign rally in New Hampshire where he inaccurately attributed capital security to Haley and alleged uh, destruction of evidence. A senior Trump ca uh, Trump campaign advisor, Chris Lassit La Civita, La what the heck? It's your people, man. So Chris blah, 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 downplayed the confusion, stating, Nancy, Nikki, it's a distinction without a difference. So look, guys, now we're calling it, I think, honestly, rightfully so. Finally, Trump's being called out for being older, his age. He's getting a little slower. I don't think he's as sharp nowadays. I think this is probably real. Trump supporters will not admit this under any circumstance, which is huge hypocrisy because they call it Biden constantly for having being mentally unfit. Well, guess what? Trump's up there in age and maybe he's going to start doing the same thing. Are you going to turn on Trump then? That's my question. So I actually appreciate these comments. She needs to throw a Hail Mary at this point. So I think it's probably a good move strategically as wise as well. Well, they asked her that in the debates. They asked Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and everyone else, how do you feel about having an older candidate? And everyone says that they don't, past a certain age, you shouldn't run, right? But they'll never name Trump by name. And for example, when Dana Bash and the other moderators, you know, CNN otherwise, will say Ron DeSantis specifically, is Trump too old? They will never answer it because they know the second they get quoted as that, they're just going to have all the Trump supporters jump down their throat and they're going to lose those votes. So they're too afraid. They're too scared. But I do want to say, and I want to turn it to Pratik to get his thoughts, but I think it is a little ironic and funny that, you know, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis both are running on the platforms that pass a certain age, you should not run for the presidency, implying that Trump is too old to everything you just said. And yet, who are the same people that kind of are going to be voting for them anyway. It's all these old people yep, who are exactly. too old. And it's like, it's just so funny. Like, you have to toe the line between insulting your voters versus, okay, this person should not be president. I think you could kind of thread that needle if people are generous towards you. But again, once you insult dear leader Trump, it's all this bad blood against you and whatever you say next, however much sense it makes, you know, it's all a wash and your campaign is down the toilet. I don't even think it's an insult. Like, that's the issue. Like, to say that if you're 80 plus, you shouldn't be president. Is that an insult? I shouldn't be president and I'm 29. Like, it's not even stamina. It's mental, mental capability. If you say like past eight, like past 70 years old, you are mentally incapable. You should not run anything. You shouldn't even run a hot dog stand. Like, how are people going to feel about that? Like, if you're 70, you're going to be like, hey, yeah. I'm smarter than you are. Why yeah, are you I, saying people are dumb? Yeah. Like, I've got my stuff more together that. than Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. I feel like it just rubs those voters the wrong way. And there's so much of the hardcore voters who will turn out and vote 
are all these seven-year-old people who that's what they have to do. They're going to go play bingo, they're going to talk to their grandkids, and they're going to vote for Trump. And that's all they have in life, Tyler, okay? You can't insult them on that. Those are the three pillars. You forgot about golf, but okay, yeah. (laughs) I think um, with what Nick is saying, I agree. I think this is why Donald Trump is still number one, and this is why even Joe Biden is number one on his side. A lot of the thing when it deals with older people is older people tend to be the ones that are the loudest voices when it comes to elections. They're the ones that vote. And they're the ones that, like, things, certain topics really rub them the wrong way. One of them is age limits, and the other one is getting rid of their Social Security. Those are the two things that really hit old people. I think where Ron DeSantis really got hit a lot, too, was because he he flip-flopped a lot on Social Security, where he was like, I want to get rid of it. And then he was like, I think it should stay. He's like flip-flopped on the same topic so many times where Trump has been consistent on it is that Social Security will be there as long as I'm president. And then with Joe Biden, the problem is, is that you see him as an old guy. But then the alternative is, is that with Donald Trump being there, Joe Biden beat him. And I think that's an important thing. And the other important thing with Joe Biden is that he... Even whenever he ran among all these 25 other people in the 2020 election, what gives Joe Biden a bigger advantage is the fact that he's older, he's experienced, he's been there, he has, he has more knowledge about all this stuff, and that the people other than Joe Biden that are the more progressive um, thinking, they don't really connect with the older population of the Democratic Party. Like Bernie Sanders doesn't necessarily connect to the old people. Even though Bernie Sanders is really old, his primary voting demographic are people below the age of 30, as opposed to Joe Biden, where he's seen as someone that has been there for so long. He has the experience, he has the knowledge, and now he's been president. So I think the older people are a very important voting block. You can't really discount them in any way. And if you try to piss off old people, that's not going to help you at all either. So I just think that is one of those talking points that doesn't really have much of a theme right now where you're just getting to that situation where if Donald Trump is there and if Donald Trump makes a mistake, the Republicans are just going to be like, look, Joe Biden makes mistakes too. And now when it comes to Biden and if he gaffs, they're going to be like, oh, Trump's old too. He makes mistakes as well. It doesn't help whenever you have other things third party people trying to comment on this stuff because in all honesty you're not you're not winning any of the old people the old people are old people they already know what they want to do even though you try to convince old people to do something else they're stuck to their old ways and i think the way that they voted before is going to be the same way that they vote now so in order for you to convince them otherwise you have to adapt to the old people you can't be like nikki haley and say that social security is not going to be around for their kids and stuff that's not a winning talking point if anything even though there's a lot of truth to it truth doesn't matter in politics perception matters in politics very that's a very true statement and with that let me just introduce the the biden gaffe of the week just because we're just talking about gaffes trump biden so we have biden is seeing people that aren't there president biden had the crowd in stitches on thursday when he played a hilarious game of where's deborah during his speech in north carolina where he appeared to confuse a woman with whom he had taken a photo for a democrat north of north carolina congresswoman deborah ross who was not in attendance quote I want to mention Congresswoman Deborah Ross. Where's Deborah? Biden asked the audience in North Carolina during a Thursday speech, quote, I just had taken my picture with her. That's probably why she left. Biden continued, sparking a laugh from the crowd, quote, 
Oh, she couldn't be here, actually, Biden continued. That's not true. I just got mixed up. So, look, I mean, sm smaller... But this is just... Biden would have made this gaffe 30 years ago, but look, we're getting this content every week. They're trying to hide him, and he's still screwing up. He's still not even knowing who's in att attendance at his events. Do you think someone like Vivek would ever have that happen? He would not. He's sharp. He's a workhorse. He's less than half the age of this dude. Get your stuff together, people. Let's stop booting in these old people. <laughs> All I mean, the stuff I sad. said about like... old people, Tyler threw it down the drain. <laughs> 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 I think it is sad that he even feels the need to run. I feel like he's just probably Being feels pressure, pigeonholed. Where, for example, it's been out there where if Trump wasn't running, he wasn't going to run. Just the fact that Trump is in the race is the only reason he's still even putting up with the facade of trying to be involved. And it's unfortunate because... Most of the country doesn't like either of these two people. Granted, they like one or the other, maybe, but both of their disapprovals are pretty bad. So even though, yeah, they get people energized to go vote for them, and they're the clear front runners in both political parties, their disapproval rates are higher than anyone else. So even though, yeah, you have a lot of supporters, like, talk about bringing the country together, what's our shared future going to be? Nothing under these two guys, so... Don't Good you kind of feel bad for Biden? Yeah. He's spending the final years of his life. I know, yeah. Trying to be president, getting ripped apart every single week. Like, the dude should be enjoying retirement on a beach somewhere, on an island with some some unnamed person. You know, I don't know what he's into. <laughs> oh We've all seen the videos of him smelling hair. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but anyways, let's move on to our next topic. <laughs> what do we have? We have a Republican civil war. What's going on? So... Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene made it clear this Wednesday that if House Speaker Mike Johnson supports a deal funding Ukraine, she's ready to shake things up. Quote, I would introduce the motion to vacate myself, Greene boldly declared. <laughs> Meanwhile, Speaker Johnson <laughs> spoke with President Biden and said he would not budge on Ukraine funding or in passing comprehensive immigration reform, which, you know, it's that's another thing where clearly, you know, neither party is in agreement with each other but you know 10 years ago like this was not a controversial issue there was, it was bipartisan like they had the same ideas even jeb bush like jeb bush sounded like you know he was very middle of the road in terms of immigration policy the whole like dreamers thing with obama like all of that sure there was some controversy but overall it was both parties were in agreement trump of course everything changed and now biden has to be like anti-trump and in doing so he has a position that, frankly, his own party hasn't had for decades. But anyway, um, McConnell comes in, of course. We all love Mitch McConnell, as everyone knows. He added a touch of realism, adding that, quote, if we had 100% Republican government, we probably would not be able to get a single Democrat vote. And, quote, it seems like a unique opportunity to achieve something in a divided government, according to McConnell, as he headed into the meeting with Biden. And, of course, by the way, um, what's guys, what's the guy's name in West Virginia, Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin, now that he's retiring, you know, the Democrats aren't going to have that 50, 50 Senate anymore. That seat is going to flip red. It's going to flip Republican. And as a result, you know, I know he's talking about a divided government here, but it seems like Republicans are actually poised to retake the Senate, which in that case, it's not divided. And guess what? If Trump wins, he's going to have the house, the Senate and the presidency, all three, and oddly enough, he's going to be in a really good position to actually pass things and get things done if only they could agree. And plus, the kicker is, you know, Biden had all that stuff, but he didn't have the Supreme Court. Trump has the Supreme Court. 
So he's literally going to have every single vertical of government under his, which, you know, funny thinking back to the dictator comments. I know he's joking a little bit, but he can make it happen in a way. Which might inspire some Democrats to get out there and vote. You never know. But I don't have too many comments on this, but I will say one thing. MTG is like the girlfriend that goes, if you don't, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. Because she's like, I'm going to recuse myself if I don't get what I want. What kind of like spoiled brat tantrum is that? Come on, MTG. I know we have low expectations, but come on now. So I think what's interesting is that Speaker Mike Johnson won. Um, He became Speaker. Speaker Mike Johnson is more of the Freedom Caucus type guy. He's not someone that is more of the establishment Republican that you've had in the past, dealing with Kevin McCarthy, dealing with Speaker Boehner, dealing with Paul Bryan. All of those people were more of like, you know, we need to have the establishment side. They had the same thought process as Mitch McConnell, where it's like, they think like me, like you need to have the votes. If you have the votes, let's do it. If you don't have the votes, let's not do it. You need to think strategically. Don't jump into random stuff. Don't fight for causes that you can't pass. That kind of logic. Now, when you break down the two parties, you have that wing of the party, the Freedom Caucus wing, which is like, you know, become more of the MAGA wing in the larger picture and then you have the establishment republican wing the MAGA wing is the more popular wing among regular voters people that are regularly voting are not excited about mitch mcconnell they're not like people that are like oh wow mitch mcconnell he's the best i need to have more republicans like that if that was the case nikki haley would be number one right now she's not on the flip side, you have the MAGA wing. Now, if Vivek Ramaswamy becomes a major face in the party, if he becomes a VP candidate, if he becomes like the future of the Republican Party, these are the people that are going to be the future of the party. Your people like Speaker Johnson, your people like MTG, these guys. And it's like the party has kind of shifted where the problem is, is that everything Nick is saying is exactly what the party should do. The Republicans should capitalize on this stuff. If anything, they should be hyping up Donald Trump because they need to make sure that the Senate, the House, the presidency and the Supreme Court are all in the back. The problem is, is the Republican Party is the Republican Party and they're not the Democratic Party. If you have the liberals, the Democratic people will always adjust to their party stance. You will never see someone like AOC really go bulldoze something that Nancy Pelosi is trying to do because in the end, they have loyalty for that party. The Republican Party is different where people that vote are not necessarily they don't care how loyal you are to the party if the part if you decide to go against the party and take stances against your party the republican people are like yeah we like this person this guy's a fighter he's trying to kill off the swamp they don't necessarily think we need to have a united republican party as opposed to the democrats where it's like if you are someone that is a divider within the democrat think about somebody like joe manchin democrats hate that guy they're like this guy is like the reason why our party can't accomplish things we need to get rid of all this clutter so we have unanimity on trying to get things done republicans need to visualize this a lot better and they need to do a better job at doing that because in all honesty mitch mcconnell is probably the best senate majority leader the country has ever had and in terms of a party, you know, leadership establishment type figure, Mitch McConnell has done more for the Republican Party than any Republican has in the past four decades for the Republican Party in terms of trying to get stuff done for the party. And I think we have to acknowledge that and we have to put that into perspective where you have all this new blood coming in, all these people that are brand new, that don't have any actual agenda. They just like to come up with all these random causes and fights, which they can't ever have the votes to pass, where if you have somebody like Mitch McConnell there, they should 
center around Mitch McConnell. They need to have people that are going to fight to create a unanimous, unified party. The problem is that will never happen. And with Donald Trump being there, Donald Trump is another one of those people that is like, all right, I am going to go against my party. My party does dumb stuff. I need to drain the swamp. I need to clean out all this corruption. We need to have someone brand new. We need to, you know, change the system. I think the whole concept of the Republican Party is very different from the Democratic Party. And in all honesty, Republicans like those people. They don't like people like Mitch McConnell. They don't care about unifiedness. They All they care about is they want to have someone that is willing to smash the system with a hammer. But the problem is, is that if you do have all the systems in the bag, like Nick is saying, where if we have a Republican Supreme Court, if we have a Senate, if we have a House and we have a presidency, they should capitalize on it. The problem is, is that my party is really bad at capitalizing on things. They just like to smash things with a hammer. And if the Republicans take charge of all these stuff, I guarantee you the Republicans are going to get divided on passing uh, passing bills that they want to pass. They won't be able to pass something even if all of the parties are like even if they controlled the entire show. And I think that's my worry as a Republican personally. Yeah, well said. With that, let's move on to international stuff. So we have some uh, increasing uh, escalations with Iran and Pakistan, which is interesting. So tell us about that, Pratik. So Iran and Pakistan almost go to war. So in an unprecedented escalation, Pakistan and Iran exchanged strikes on each other's territories, intensifying tensions along their volatile 900-kilometer border in the Baluchistan province. Baluchistan province in Pakistan and Sistan and Baluchistan province in Iran witnessed these confrontations. Iran's initial strikes targeted alleged militants in Pakistan, triggering a condemnation from Pakistan labeled, labeling it as a violation of international law. Iran claimed it aimed at Jaish al-Adil, a Sunni militant group with cross-border activities. Pakistan retaliated with precision military strikes on separatist hideouts in Sistan and Baluchistan, resulting in casualties. Following the initial hit in Pakistan, the retaliation emphasized sovereignty protection. Yet Pakistan swiftly conveyed a desire for de-escalation, acknowledging that both nations as brotherly nations and advocating dialogue. The echoed, this echoed in Iran's um, Friday statement, the plea for peace highlighted Pakistan's challenging position already stained before the clash. The strategic move towards containment underscores the nation's reluctance to engage in further conflict amidst regional complexities, and the situation reflects a delicate balance between asserting sovereignty and avoiding additional burdens. Both countries express a desire to calm tensions, urged by the UN to exercise restraint and address security concerns through peaceful dialogue. Hope I wish all countries were like Iran and Pakistan. They accidentally bomb each other and then they're like, eh, we shouldn't go to war. We'll figure it out. That's the well, way it wasn't it accidental. Be. They were basically saying there were militants there being used against their country, so they had to bomb them. Historically, they've been pretty diplomatic, which is interesting because it's like a Sunni Shia divide. So what are the Sunnis the um so the Sunnis, Pakistanis no, and no, the Shias no. So, are the, is it the opposite? So Shias are both Iranian and Pakistani. So Sunni is mixed between Pakistan and um, in terms of their demographics. However, it was it's dealing with this province that is in the middle. So you know how India and Pakistan share a border with Kashmir? Iran and Pakistan share a border with this province called Baluchistan. So Baluchistan is like this big like 900 kilometer territory 
where there really isn't anything. It's kind of like a buffer state. There's like nothing there. It's like a big desert. But then all of these militant terrorist groups, they all center around all of those specific places because they want to incite some kind of violence. Problem is, is that nobody can really do anything against any citizens because unless they actually engage in some type of action, they haven't really committed a crime. So you have all of these like terrorist groups that like to, you know, divulge in some of those areas, in particular in Balochistan. And the weird thing about Iran and Pakistan, obviously this is like, for me as an Indian and as an American, these are the two countries I really don't like. It's like a thing, like Indians are supposed to not like Pakistan, like no matter what, it's like a philosophy of life. That's, and then the same thing is, as an American, I really don't like Iran. Iran is responsible for all the terrorist activities that happen all around the world for us against America. So when it deals with these two countries, the weird thing is they have a lot of parallels and then they have a lot of differences. Iran is more allied with India. Um, Iran, India, and Russia, before at least before um, the Russia-Ukrainian situation, Iran, uh, Russia, and India all had a, had a triumvirate alliance going on, while Pakistan has always been one of America's key, like, you know, strategic allies. But since 2004, whenever Bush came into power, or in the second term, India and America have had a lot of increasing relations, and Trump and India are, like, really close to each other, more so than they were with any of the previous presidents. So, very weird situation but again is one of those that like it's a complex issue which is dealing with the province in the middle and there is terrorist groups this Jaish al-Assad which is a Sunni militant group that wants to like take like the Sunni people in that area they want to get rid of Iran right essentially and Pakistan at the same time they're mixed when it comes to Shia and Sunni but they're a uh, actual they're both islamic states you can't be in pakistan if you're not a muslim and you can't be in iran if you're not really a muslim so those places are like actual militant almost states where it's like religious oriented so it's a weird situation where like yeah they these countries have like the same religious backgrounds they have the same economic backgrounds they have like the same type of governments so whenever they go attack each other it's kind of a confusing mess well you say that is what same it is. economic backgrounds i mean i i feel figure iran's much more wealthy than pakistan they are but they're closed off hmm. okay well so. it's also interesting that iran is like you know fighting on several different fronts now if they're also attacking pakistan because they're basically at <laughs> war with us as well at least a proxy war with everything that's going on in israel as well but nick any thoughts nothing on that pratik thank you for the inside baseball yeah no, that was great yeah i don't have too much to add there but let's just move on to our final story then we have Biden. Biden closing out the day. Nick? So sad that the energy stuff is at the end of the show, but, you know, we'll talk about it anyway. I wanted to start so, and leave it with a bang, man. All right, man. Big story. Okay. Leave it with we'll a see. bang. I mean, hopefully not a bang, um, but bang. a natural gas explosion is not a good thing. Anyway, <laughs> so Biden flip-flops on natural gas. That's Pratik's headline, not mine. Uh, Europe wants more natural gas from the United States, and they hope the U.S. will help by approving new projects. But the Biden administration has said they may not want to engage in more fracking to limit the amount of liquefied natural gas exports. If that happens, Europe might turn to Qatar for gas. Is it Qatar? I forget. It's Qatar. Anyway, Let's thank do you. It. Fancy. Although it won't cause immediate issues, this you know whole turn to the Middle East more for gas versus the United States, this, this comment from the Biden administration causes a lot of uncertainties around supply for Europe, especially after Russia turned off the taps. Um, 
Experts are warning that depending too much on one supplier could be risky, and some in Europe, like Germany's Green Party, oppose new U.S. gas projects, citing environmental concerns from fracking, of course. Um, Pratik, I can already see you, um, you sent me a message about having a classic debate here. What do you want to argue about? Because honestly, I think this is bad for Republican voters, too, if we end up uh, building out all these LNG export terminals. I think it would be really bad for Republican voters, in fact. So my thought process when it deals with natural gas is that this is one of the things that I really like about the Biden administration. The one thing that they've done good in this entire administration that they don't really get credit for, obviously for political reasons, is Biden has boosted the amount of oil, you know, exports that they've been doing. We've increased the amount of fracking that takes place in this country, and we've increased the amount of natural gas exports that have taken place in this country. This was a lot of question marks about the Biden administration because it get links, it gets linked to all the other 25 progressives that were running in the race last time. Whenever it was Biden versus 25 other people, where Biden was the most different from everybody else. This is one of those things that there is a lot of commonalities between a Republican and a Democratic administration where I do think the biggest problem when it deals with energy is that you have Europe. Now, Europe, they like to fight this, like, save the environment game, per quotes. Everybody wants to save the environment. They want to make the environment cleaner and better and all this other great stuff. But problem is, is that a lot of their alternatives don't make sense. Natural gas is the most, probably the most practical form of energy, as opposed to some of the other options that are out there. Primarily coal, which we moved away from coal because coal is really dirty, and then solar. Problem with solar is solar only works well whenever there's a sun around. Europe is a very gloomy continent. Everything about Europe is gloomy. Like when you think of Europe, any country in Europe, you automatically assume a bunch of clouds. Like when you picture Europe in your mind. The problem when it comes to natural gas is that in 2011, I think, is when they had the EU mandate. Nick can correct me if I'm wrong. So before that, there was a policy that all these countries could do whatever they wanted to do in terms of fracking, but they had to follow whatever the EU standards were around it. Then the EU decided to mandate that none of these countries that are within the European Union can frack. So what do they do, obviously? They move to the other countries that don't have this follow this mandate because they still need natural gas to make sure they don't freeze to death. And solar energy does a really crappy job at, you know, preventing that. So then they started to shift towards Russia. Since 2008, um, whenever Russia, at the time, even people had those conversations where Mitt Romney said some stuff about Russia and like Obama was like, Russia is no longer a threat. What the hell are you talking about? Since that time period, like Russia became a major natural gas provider. They basically have a monopoly that is state run by the Russian government that controls all the natural gas supply that was going on at that time for all of Europe. None of the European countries wanted to frack, so they went to their three primary allies, primary areas that they can go to, Russia, Norway, and America. And then I think they do some in, in England too. They have some stuff going on in the Thames. But the main stuff there is that Europe decided that they wanted to fight this stupid like global cause that we want to save the environment. But in order to fight that cause, they quit fracking, but then they became reliant on all the other providers that provide them with natural gas because they can't do without natural gas. It's kind of like, let me shoot myself in the foot and then try to fight a marathon. That's what Europe did. And instead of like them trying to just do a little bit of their own fracking that they were doing in some of the places that they could frack, they decided that they wanted to become fully reliant on all these other monopolized people that are like, you know, selling their own natural gas. 
And at that point, that's what made Putin very powerful to the point where he thought he can fight a war in Ukraine and win. But then the United States decided that we want to try to provide them with more natural gas. Again, very smart move by the Biden administration. Like America became what Russia was before Russia was the one that was supplying all the natural gas. But now America started providing them with a lot of natural gas, which kind of hurt Russia a lot because now like they can even make an argument that Russia is losing a lot of money by being in this war with Ukraine because America they basically shifted their you know efforts to America because again Europe doesn't have the balls to go frack it all anyway because they want to save the environment they like to fight the cause that does this is a stupid cause if you don't have any resources to do it so with no alternative in place to natural gas now America is saying that they don't want to provide them with as much natural gas because Biden obviously wants to win the election too in 2004 so uh, 2024 sorry so it's just a weird scenario in my opinion where you're trying to fight a battle that you can't win because unless you have an actual alternative to natural gas you can't really remove natural gas and Europe hasn't been able to do it because if they were able to they would have done it the only other option really there is nuclear energy which they don't really want to move to nuclear energy but France is one of the largest nuclear energy exporters in the world too so just wanted to give my whole stance out there so now it's all Nick all right, Pratik Fight said a lot of good things that if you don't know anything about energy, they sound really, really good. This is like when all the politicians, and I'm going to come out guns blazing here because oh, Pratik did it. too, right? Okay, so number one, natural gas for the longest time, it is a gas, right? You pipe it through a network, okay? You need all these pipelines across any country where you recover natural gas. Number one, there's just not many shale reservoirs in France, for example. Like Pratik talks about France having a lot of nuclear. That's part of the reason because they don't really have proven gas reserves in France. They've got a little bit, but not a lot compared to some of the other majors, right? Also, competitive advantage, something Republicans used to love about free trade is, you know, if another country can produce something a lot cheaper, maybe it doesn't make sense for you to invest in it. In the 2010s, there was never an idea that we were going to go to war or not we, but you know, that Germany was going to be in some new war with Russia, right? That wasn't even on their radar at all. This is right after Fukushima happens, all the environmental stuff like Pratik said. So it was just like a different time when they made that choice. Now, in retrospect, not the best choice. But at the time, the whole sort of free trade competitive advantage stuff, it made a lot of sense why they were doing the things they were doing. As far as, you know, Europe being hypocrites, I mean, I'll, I'll agree with you there. I love calling the Europeans hypocrites because they are, you know, that's how it is. I, <laughs> you know, don't, you'll never going to catch me something saying nice about France or Germany or any of those other countries. Okay. Actually, maybe Berlin has great techno music, but that aside, um, for here's why it matters to voters. One for Biden administration, like, why does this make sense? Well, number one, there have been some studies coming out recently about methane leakages. Basically, when you take gas, liquefy it at really low temperatures, put it on tankers and ship it across the world's oceans, you have some escapes, right? The gas doesn't like to be set in these little domes that they're kept in. So it leaks out slowly over time. And a lot of the estimates, both in the pipeline networks, in these domes and what have you, show that all these methane emissions, if you total them all up, for the amount of LNG capacity, the amount of liquefied natural gas we are trying to build in terms of export terminals in this country, it is going to be more greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide equivalent, than the entire continent of Europe. That came out like two months ago in terms of the latest studies. So it's basically like, okay, all of Europe wants to decarbonize. If they rely on US LNG, they're going to more than double their consumption of all these hydrocarbons and they're back to like 
they're, they're even worse than they were before they started the net zero emissions goals. So like this is a terrible idea for them. The reason why this is bad for the, the, U, the average U.S. consumer is the following. Europeans, because they don't have as much supply, right? They don't have all the infrastructure. They don't even have the stuff under the ground in the same way that we do. They are willing to pay a lot higher of a price because they have far less supply. Natural gas, it used to be that, again, it's a gas. You can only send it through pipelines. You couldn't really liquefy it economically. Now you can, of course, so things have changed. But part of the reason natural gas prices are cheap in the United States is because we can't send it to other markets. That's the reason why natural gas will stay lower, even though global oil markets, you know, as you know, you know, oil, it can trade one place, like one price in the U.S. It'll trade a very similar price in the Middle East, whatever. It's a global commodity. Natural gas for most of its history has not been a global commodity. And therefore, once you start to globalize it, once you start to liquefy it, put it on these tankers and ship it all over the world, you start to have price convergence where the average U.S. consumer is going to start paying much higher prices for their gas because now all of a sudden all the suppliers in the United States have every incentive where in the United States, because it's so cheap, because we have so much, we're willing to pay a lot less than most of the rest of the world. So once you actually have a globalized market and they have alternatives to send that gas somewhere else, guess what, baby? You're going to end up paying a lot more money for fuel. And as the winters get colder and what have you, you know, tough luck. But I don't know. That's, I think overall in terms of the U.S., that's why this move makes sense. One, it doesn't make sense for climate. You know, Biden wants to do something about it and doubling Europe's annual emissions by increasing U.S. LNG exports. That doesn't make any sense. Natural gas has a lot less emissions when you just pipe it as a gas through pipeline networks in the United States versus putting it onto tankers and shipping it abroad, refiring it, what have you. Like all of that, if you just do the life cycle emissions, and sorry, this this is starting to sound very wonky. I've talked for a long time. Um, but all that is to say, basically, there's two parts. One, I agree with Pratik. The Europeans, they try, but they always get it wrong. I hope they get it right next time. We'll see. But as far as the United States, is this really good for us? Sure, the natural gas companies are going to make a lot of money. Is the average person in the United States going to be better or worse as a result of this? Most of us are just consumers of natural gas. We're going to be a lot worse off because prices are going to go through the roof because now all of a sudden, as gas becomes a globally commoditized item, guess what? You're going to have to pay so much higher because the rest of the world is willing to pay heaps and heaps of cash more than the average U.S. consumer, and that's going to drive prices up. I think Nick Nick's points are fair. Um, my only argument is just that my thought process when it comes to any type of politics is that you don't ever want to restrict people from being able to do what's best for their country. I think the problem with the EU it's not is best EU for is the country weird, though. Critique. It's fair, but the EU is a strange. Well, but it depends like, on what you mean by best. If you're talking about GDP or how much people are paying for. I think I think it's a little bit of both, right? You want to make sure that people are not getting hit. These European countries want to make sure that they have natural gas so that they're not their people are not getting hit by paying a lot of money in for gas. Europe's weird country is a, a weird continent where they have certain places that won't necessarily need as much public I mean, need as much like private road travel 
where you will have a lot more public transport that will take over a lot of some of these like certain countries that are there in Europe. Because Europe is not a very large, a lot of your countries in Europe are not really that large, isn't it, in terms of land mass. Then you have certain countries within Europe that are your like, you know, they're the ones that take up the most money. Um, places like Spain, we don't really talk about countries like Spain that much, but Spain doesn't really have much in terms of their energy, you know, export potential. They don't really have that much that they can like, you know, provide for themselves. So they were reliant on a lot of these other exporters to provide them with stuff. You're, Spain, Iberian Peninsula is a really large landmass. Same with places like Italy. Problem with Italy is that they do have things. They do have natural gas exports that they can provide. They do have things that they can do in terms of shale. They, I mean, historically, they also had a lot of, a lot of the larger oil exporters in the past, a lot of them had some connection with Italy. But then because of the EU wanting to mandate this stuff, Italy got hit a lot. Italy's revenues and their GDP is really weak compared to a lot of the other countries around Europe. Then you have Netherlands. Netherlands is one of those countries that they do have, a, they do produce a lot of energy. And Netherlands is like an energy production factory. They're the ones that produce a lot of the wind energy. They produce a lot of the solar energy. They also produce a lot of coal, but then they've started to cut down on what they do with coal because they want to try to promote their more of their windmills and their wind energy because it looks better and is cleaner and all that stuff. But then they also have a lot of natural gas that comes from Netherlands. A lot of those places got hit a lot, especially when it deals with them trying to fight to save this environment stuff. In all honesty, though, within Europe, a lot of the non-EU members are the ones that promote the most in terms of their natural gas landscape. England, or UK in particular, they provide a lot of natural gas. Norway provides a lot of natural gas. And then there is that one other country, I'm blanking on it, give me a second, um, Ukraine. But Ukraine right now is at war with Russia, which is part of the problem that they're having in terms of the natural gas exports, which is why America has tried to pitch in as much as they've had. It's a very complicating issue and scenario here where it's like we try to blank it out. Like we're trying to fight this cause, which is fine. You can fight all these causes, but you don't want to do it at the expense of your people. People in Europe are reliant on natural gas to heat their homes and then make sure that they're, they're not freezing to death. They're a very gloomy continent as it is, which so it doesn't really make things better. And on top of all that other stuff, they if it's going to cost people more for gas whenever they're traveling from place to place, it's going to be more expensive in places like france spain italy and you know especially in like uk it's not there anymore but especially in germany those places they tend to be a lot more travel and there's a lot more private you know cars that are going from place to place they do have a lot of public transport but a lot of their public transport is centered around their bigger cities not around rural areas so it's a complicating mess in my opinion and i just argue that if the biden administration is doing one thing right and that is making sure gas prices stay low around here in america and around the globe by increasing the amount of amount of exports that we're providing and we've done a really good job at it i think if a republican was there they would do the same exact stuff i think if biden has done one good thing in his presidency why spoil that and in all honesty if you're a democrat how many democrats are going to go vote against biden for what he's done in terms of energy because they're just going to say that if it was trump it would have been much worse but it is Biden. He's doing his best. I think it's the same as what Republicans will say about immigration. If Biden detains a bunch of illegal immigrants and reduces the amount of illegal immigrants that are coming in this country, the Republicans are still going to say Trump's going to do it better. I think the same thing applies with energy policy, but Democrats will never acknowledge that. And you have Biden there and he's trying to win this vote. But in order to do that, he's going to mess up the one thing that's working for them because all of these problems that are going on with Ukraine are less of a problem because Biden is providing so much in natural gas to all these countries in Europe because if he wasn't they would have to go to somewhere else 
cost of Europe would be very high. And then the Ukraine war would matter a lot more to us than it does right now, in my opinion. Nick, I think before you... So yeah. you, I know you're going to respond to Pratik. You get a lot to say there. I just wanted to quickly ask. So why, why can't we just subsidize our own natural gas you know, uh, prices for consumers and pay for that with the profits of the natural gas we get by exporting it? Because wouldn't that still bring in a profit? You get your cake and eat it too. It doesn't help with the... You know, we're doing the, the, that the leakage right issue, the emissions issue. But in terms of as an American consumer, there are ways we could still benefit from that, I think, if we're smart about it. The simple fact is that oil companies run this country and they're never going to agree to anything like that. OK, if you like, for example, even on a state level, where is a lot of this going to happen? It's going to happen in the Gulf of Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, those other states. Those states are dominated politically by fossil fuel interests. Like for this to change, for there to be an additional tax that they're like, yeah, we, we want to have this tax. This would be good. We're going to give it back like Alaska does to its citizens. We'll have a tax and dividend or something, right? They're just never going to agree to that. So, Tyler, on the one hand, while I think, you know, I, it would be a nice idea, realistically, the whole, like, tax and then redistribute, I just don't know if it's really going to work out, if people are going to vote for it, especially when Republicans win again with the Senate, if like they're projected to. They are the party of fossil fuels. Like, they are never going to agree to something like that at all. So I just don't see it as feasible. But to your but, point, but also, you know, citizens might complain, though, if their prices go up a ton, they're going to their reps and saying, why is this happening? Is this happening because of something you did? I think you're probably right. I just I feel like there are solutions, you know, if we were. Yeah, but but we also do this for U.S. oil. Like we used to have stripper prices. We probably still do. Right. Um, if you. All right. Google oil stripper prices. It's not what you might think. <laughs> but, you know, the U.S. for a long time has tried to artificially constrain, you know, the import export of oil so that, you know, domestic prices would be somewhat affordable. And just so that we would have that was one reason for it. Another was energy security. We were worried about that. You know, this harkens back to the 70s, of course, and all this other stuff. So I don't know, just the United States has done stuff on that. I'm not saying it hasn't. I'm just saying, like, politically, for there to be, like, a new tax on all the fossil fuels, you know, all the companies, their incentive is not to have it. No one's going to lobby in favor of it. And for everything Pratik said about, oh, like, Democrats are still going to support Biden because they're not really going to care. I think for the most part, you're kind of right. But when it comes to younger Democrats who actually care about environmental stuff, he will lose votes over this. He will lose support. And the next, well, I guess he's not running for round two. This is his final his last dance, if you will. But I genuinely think the administration will lose a lot of its like younger supporters who they don't really have much to care about when it comes to the Biden administration, except for clean energy stuff, except for, you know, student loans and these other things. And if you take that away and say, wow, you know, Biden has been one of the worst polluting presidents, more so than any Republican president in the last couple decades, what does that mean for your legacy on the environment? You would completely kill your own platform. And for that reason, I think it's political suicide to approve all these projects. I think it's not like he is. Too, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Pratik. I, I mean, he is like 80, but yeah. I was about to say, it's like, you know, doesn't have much life left there. But Pratik. I think what Nick's saying is fair. Um, One thing I do want to say, though, too, just to make sure that everyone's clear on this, natural gas is also a fossil fuel, but liquefied natural gas is a little bit more elements that may make it not a, nat may make it not a fossil fuel to the same level. That's not true, Correct Pratik. me if I'm wrong. No, 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 no. How does it's, that work? It starts Explain as me. natural gas, and then you liquefy okay. it. It is the exact same thing. Okay. okay? And then when you so it's like ship refined. it, yeah. when you ship it, 
there's something called a city gate, right? You plug into the city gate. There's one outside Louisiana, for example. And then you're going to basically just reconvert it from the liquid back into the gas. And that's how you're going to flow it through your pipelines. And the main problem that people have with natural gas is mainly methane, right? Isn't that the thing? Or it's just we'll like see, greenhouse it's right, gas? Like, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like, as I said, um, I mean, that's, I think we've talked about this enough, but what I think is very important (laughs) is that when it deals with natural gas, um, and when it deals with the U.S. providing things to other countries, we do need to anticipate the foreign policy aspect of all this stuff, where it does make America a stronger country altogether. Geopolitically, yes. Yeah, and Europe is reliant on the United States. If we decide to cut the amount of exports that we're providing to Europe, Europe is not going to be as reliant on the United States, which is not going to make us as strong geopolitically. The whole Ukrainian war, no matter how costly it was and all how bad it is for people in Ukraine, it was a profitable venture for the United States. It's a very terrible thing to say, but it's true. If the if the Ukraine war didn't happen, America wouldn't have been able to shale as much natural gas and sell it to the Europeans as much as we did. And we capitalize on the aspect that, you know, most Republicans would have thought would have been smart and most Democrats would have probably been against, but Biden did it. I think this is the one thing that I give Biden accolades for is that the reason why the war effort isn't as bad and the reason why America hasn't really been, you know, suffering in terms of gas prices and all this stuff is because the United States has been drilling out more and more natural gas and that's benefited us in the long term. We have been able to profit, you know, make our situation a lot more profitable with Europe, where the whole Ukrainian war, maybe even the arguments are the reason was been lingering on for so much is because America's profiting from it. If America didn't, we were probably providing them a lot of weapons. I don't really know about all that stuff. But I do know one thing is that natural gas, in terms of our provisions that we're providing to Europe, has made Europe very dependent on America. The same way they were dependent on Russia, based on everything that I was arguing in the beginning, because they decided that they want to have this mandate to prevent their own countries from being able to frack. But then Nick also has some solid points, is that there's a lot of reserves there that you can't really frack anyway. But it is what it is. Like, you know, it's a conversation where you're not really going to have a winner but it's like i just believe that in order for america to be in the best position that america can be in you gotta allow us to just sell our natural gas to europe and even though like you're trying to fight some save the environment cause you got to make sure that americans don't suffer for it and in order to make sure americans don't suffer for it you got to keep selling them selling them our natural gas Oh, those Europeans can't get enough of sweet American gas. But, That's right. you know, all that being said, I think we're going to close out on this. But for Europe, I will just say, in case anyone's still, you know, even tune in at this point, here's kind of a final thing, right? Do you believe in sort of, are we going to go all nuclear? Are we going to go all wind and solar? Are we going to go stick with fossil fuels? Like, what are we going to do? Right now, we've been doing a lot of half measures on everything, just kind of waiting to see okay, what looks like it's the best option? The only issue is these projects take like, you know, almost a decade to really solidify and get all the supply chains up and running, what have you. So it takes a long time. And by that point, you're kind of locked into whatever decision you made 10 years ago. And if, for example, Europe is really serious about decarbonization and they build out all these LNG import terminals, then it's going to be even harder if in 10 years they decide, oh, We want electricity for everything. We don't want gas. Well, guess what? You've already invested tens of billions of dollars and there's no getting around that. So you really have to make a choice at one point and they directly conflict with each other. You can play the waiting game as long as you want, but at some point, 
make a decision. That's kind of what we're doing as a country right now. We're trying to make a decision, but we can't quite. It'll probably be Trump, unfortunately, saying this. He's probably going to win. If the election was tomorrow, he would win. And, um, you know, what that means for our future, that beats the heart of me. I'm excited for four years, though. We'll finally get new candidates. It'll be interesting, okay? I'm excited about that. I don't know what's going to happen in the future other than next week we'll be back with another episode of Politicana. And that was episode 163 of Politicana. Thank you all for tuning in. Um, And as always, please follow, please share. We will catch you next week. Later.